0: or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News.
1: When this tall gentleman in white robes walked out of a building in Tarnak Farms just outside of Kandahar, Uh, It was obvious it was him.
0: Just months before the September 11th attacks, Scott Swanson was piloting an early version of the Predator drone over Afghanistan. Swanson and his team were looking for Osama bin Laden, and that day, it looked like they'd found him. The Predator, though, was unarmed. This week on War College, Swanson takes us through the early history of the Predator program, and he tells us how a skunkworks project ended up being a central part of the U.S.
2: war machine. You're listening to War College, a weekly discussion of a world in conflict focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Here's your host, Jason Fields.
0: Hello, and welcome to War College. I'm Reuters Opinion Editor Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt, Contributing Editor at War is Boring. Today, we're talking with Scott Swanson. Uh, He's a retired Air Force pilot. And Swanson was an early Predator pilot and the first uh, to fire Hellfire missiles in a combat strike. Scott, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be here today. So that's actually kind of uh, an odd distinction. And it it really speaks to how long you were with the program. When did that first strike
1: take place? That was the opening night of the air war in Afghanistan. So 2001, I guess, right? That is correct. That would have been uh, October 2001.
0: Let me ask you, how did you actually get into the drone program? I mean, you were actually an Air Force pilot, right? And you flew helicopters,
1: that's correct. I'd spent um, the first half of my career flying special operations and rescue helicopters, most of the time flying the MH-60 Pavehawk. I had actually been on an assignment to a rescue unit in Iceland, and it was getting time for me to uh, return to the States and end my assignment there. At that time, the Air Force actually was working with an assignment program for officers, uh, where they had a essentially a bulletin board uh, on a website. Um, I guess the closest thing I can relate it to today would be almost like a Craigslist, where they would have all the assignments that were available. And they were trying to meet the needs of uh, the officer cadre, um, but making it a little more friendly so you could go look for different assignments that were available and choose. At the time, I was uh, thinking of returning back to Hurlburt Field, but unfortunately, the unit I had left Ison for was in the process of drawing down uh, in order to stand up the V-22 Osprey. Uh, needless to say, that didn't happen in a hurry. <laughs> and as I was searching the board, um, I found a flying assignment in a non-traditional area for the Predator UAS, and this intrigued me because it was Vegas, a two-year assignment. Um, they were telling us we would get our follow-on assignment of choice. And at the time, they were also pushing a companion trainer as a possibility so that uh, the crew dogs could um, get a chance to fly a, uh, a small aircraft and maintain their traditional flying skills. And decided to volunteer for that. And uh, shortly thereafter, I ended up at Indian Springs to begin my uh, training. And that would have been um, – the summer of 1998. And so did you have any idea what exactly it was that you'd signed up for at that point? I did. Um, I was always a aviation nut growing up as a kid. Uh, I remember from my 13th birthday, I'd asked my parents for a subscription to Aviation Week and Space Technology. To this day, I still have a subscription. So I was a, an avid reader of the, the latest industry news and had read about and was familiar with the uh, induction of the, uh, the drone technology into the Air Force, in particular the Predator program. So were you excited to be doing this? It was interesting. It was different. Uh, it was going to be a, a break for me from the helicopter community, so I knew I would miss the, the traditional flying. Um, but I also knew that it had potential for being new, interesting, and uh, opportunities um, in another area within the Air Force. And what were the drones like back then? When I got there, they were still flying the original 12 or so, if I recall, ACTD. That's the Advanced Capability Technology Demonstrator aircraft. So those were the original Predators that were produced and fielded. They were an interesting technology, but they were certainly not mature, neither in the hardware nor the software that you would expect to see in a uh, uh, a traditional aircraft system. Those particular aircraft were built and fielded in less than a year, which is unheard of in a modern aircraft program.
0: And they weren't built by like Northrop Grumman, which at that point, might have been Northrop and Grumman, and they weren't built by General Dynamics or uh, another big company,
1: right? That's correct. They were built by a small division of um, General Atomics called Aeronautical Systems Incorporated, um, and they were built in the, the General San Diego area. Again, small contractor. I think at that time, they had a few hundred people designing and building the aircraft, so what could they do?
0: I mean, what kind of capabilities did they have when you first encountered it, which was 97 or so? 98. Right? 98. Okay, thanks.
1: When you first see these things, you look at it and go, "Wow, they're they're long wings, um, 50-some feet long, only about 25 feet long for the fuselage, very gangly." I'd grown up around the um the home-built or experimental aircraft community, had spent time out at uh, the annual convention out at Oshkosh. And in many respects, it reminded me of those aircraft. And an, it really was because the technologies were very similar. It was using a, uh, a Rotax engine, modified. What does that mean, a Rotax engine? Uh, Rotax is a brand name engine. It's a it's a small um, reciprocating engine that is used in many um, home-built aircraft and with uh, What's interesting is they're also uh, known for making snowmobile engines. <laughs> so it was a, a very small, very gangly, very lightweight aircraft. Um, but what was unique is that at the time, you could get 24 hours of endurance out of them, which was unprecedented. Yes, you can do that with a manned aircraft, but you're really stretching the crews and it requires refueling. Um, Here you're doing it with an aircraft that uh, isn't being refueled, and you don't have the same crew fatigue issues because they're on the ground, and you can swap them out if you need to.
0: So if I uh, remember just sort of reading background about this, they were also very slow, right? I mean, mean really slow.
1: That's correct. When I flew Hueys, we used to talk about doing everything at uh, 90 knots, and it was pretty much the same with the The early Predators, it was a a 90 knot or 90 mile an hour airplane. Uh, You don't get anywhere fast, but the advantage is you can stay there for a long time. And what was really breakthrough with this is that it was live motion video that could be broadcast via satellite over long distances. So instead of your traditional reconnaissance system of the day – uh, whether it's a national system, a U2, the RF4s, which I think at that time were just going to the boneyards. Most of those were wet film, and you needed to bring it back, run it through the processing, and then have image analysts figure out what was going on in those pictures. With Predator, the sensor ball that was underneath was really an outgrowth of the technology that you'd seen on the news helicopters. So now we could stand off and film in live video um, what was going on on the ground at the time, which provided a different level of insight than those still pictures had to that point.
0: So what missions were the the, uh, predators first being sent out on?
1: They had initially been fielded in the Balkans Um, So it was uh, at that time in the field, uh, the very first uses were out of uh, Albania, uh, monitoring the Serbs in that conflict. I actually was deployed right after my initial qualification training, and the unit had moved to Tezar in Hungary, and we began flying missions uh, in and around Bosnia and the real change, I think, in the way Predator used was used was that fall uh, in 98 when the Serbs moved into Kosovo and the Operation Eagle Eye, which was the U.S. Uh, monitoring of the Serbs, happened. So we actually flew missions from Hungary down through Bosnia out across over the Adriatic, across Albania, and then into Kosovo to monitor the Serbs and the Serb withdrawal from Kosovo at that time.
0: So you were based in Hungary, and which is not tens of thousands of miles away from the targets you were monitoring, right? Does that speak to the range that was available at the time?
1: Well, at that time, we were limited of using a single satellite link. Now, those missions just to get where we're going was about eight hours of flying time. So it wasn't a short distance to get there, but it was within the theater and within that satellite footprint. And at that time, the Predator, you had to take off and land where your ground control station was located. So all of the crews And the launch and recovery was located at your home base. But the real change at that time was the move from those pre-planned target decks um, or pre-planned targets, much like the the U-2 or the R-4, when reconnaissance was requested for the Predator, there would be a, a laundry list of places we would go Um, So it'd be, you know, check out this particular encampment, check out this vehicle staging area, check out um, this particular crossroads. And it was a particular point at a particular time, and you would plan your route out, fly that, that great circle, and then go home. With the change to motion video, the leadership and the commanders realized That we could loiter over targets and now give them live updates of what was happening on the ground and changes. So, on those first missions, we'd get over somewhere, notice uh, a number of Serbian tanks or armored personnel carriers, and they would immediately flush the target deck and say, No, stay there. We want to see what's going on. And then we had the opportunity to follow them where are they going to? What are they doing? It was a tool that really had never been utilized to that respect before.
0: So but that ended up leading to a very strange circumstance. At least it seems strange to me. Because what the Predator could do at that point was just watch, right? So, not very long after Bosnia, after the USS Cole was struck by Al Qaeda, if I tell me if correct me at any point, but after the USS Cole was struck, you were part of the chase for
1: uh, osama bin laden right that's correct um to put a couple of pieces together as the predator developed through 98 99 and early 2000 it became much more of that full motion video change detection watch a target and see where it goes kind of uh use through the conflict in in bosnia and serbia And it was actually late in that conflict that I was involved with a special project to put a laser designator ball on the Predator and field it. The idea then was to get a vehicle that could spot targets without uh, endangering the crews as a normal forward air controller type mission um, may um, have presented and allow the um, the A-10s, F-16s, F-15Es to drop laser guided bombs on targets that we spotted in Serbia.
0: Normally being a little extra can be a bit much,
2: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Right, as opposed to necessarily having people on the ground with the laser pointers.
1: Exactly. Or having that forward air controller having to get underneath the clouds and exposing themselves to the Serb anti-aircraft fire. Now you've got an unmanned aircraft that they're willing to take the risk of it being shot down while they're hunting those targets. That caught the eye of some folks uh within the intelligence community, and they looked at that capability, and in the summer of 2000, we're looking at options in order to locate Osama bin Laden within Afghanistan in order to put eyes on so that – uh he could be struck at the time we were thinking with probably cruise missiles, much like the attack had been um, a year or two earlier. Right, which Bill Clinton had launched, uh, if I remember right. Yes, that would have been in the late 90s. Um, so at the end of the uh, the mission in Bosnia, I was asked to take an assignment to the Big Safari Detachment, which was located at the Predator uh, facilities in San Diego uh, and chose to to take that as the uh, the deputy commander uh, and move to, to Southern California uh, as part of that I was approached to lead the flight operations for a team going into Afghanistan with the predator in order to search for and identify bin Laden
0: let me just uh, for people won't necessarily know what big safari is. I just want to mention very quickly that it's almost a a skunk works, a skunk works to try to get military equipment out there quickly, do experimentation, that
1: kind of thing. Exactly. Uh, It's been around since the 1950s. And it is a special acquisition program that modifies fielded aircraft very quickly in order to meet intelligence needs. Uh, It's soon as as a couple of days in some circumstances, typically a couple of months to get um, new technologies fielded. And I'll plug a a book. Uh, There's something called The History of Big Safari by a former director, Bill Grimes, that really goes in-depth in some of the fascinating, fascinating programs that they did in the uh, 50s, 60s, and 70s.
0: Well, that sounds fascinating. So, but there you were, and uh, I'm sorry to have interrupted. But that's how you got
1: the, on the trail of uh, Bin Laden. So that is correct. And one of the things that was developed as part of this is that there was no convenient way to get the operational crews forward. So it was developed uh, what's called remote. Split operations. So they had a very, very small footprint forward with the maintenance people and a pilot to launch the aircraft. And then once it had launched, you would hand it over via a satellite link to the crews, which were on the far reaches of that satellite footprint. In this particular case, we were located in Europe. So Thousands of miles away from where the aircraft was operating, and that's where we had our operations cell set up with all these support and intelligence folks, and we were flying uh, missions through the fall of 2000 in order to locate Bin Laden in Afghanistan, and did spot him on at least two occasions.
0: I, I know this is more of an emotional question, and this is you know sort of a high level conversation uh, looking at the program, but did you have any strong feeling when you actually saw him?
1: I was in the seat. Uh, My sensor operator, uh, Jeff Gway, was next to me, and we looked at each other, and it's like, that's him. Um, We had uh, known the history of Al-Qaeda. We'd had um, numerous briefings. We were familiar with the, the bombings in Africa. Uh, that were um, Al Qaeda um, sponsored at the uh, the U.S. embassies. We knew it was a a bad organization. And when this tall gentleman in white robes walked out of a building in Tarnak Farms, just outside of Kandahar, uh, it was obvious it was him. Uh, we watched for quite some time as they walked through the compound, down the street and into another building for a series of meetings. Uh, just the way the security team, the other folks around him, the deference they paid to him, it, it was just obvious to us that that's who it was.
0: And you passed the information along, and I guess as you said earlier, you were expecting
1: that maybe there would be a cruise missile strike. That's what we all thought. Um, when we started this, we were under the impression that Once they had positive eyes on, something would have been ginned up. It didn't happen. At that point, uh, as the crew, we were spinning the numbers to figure out how long we could stay over target. Before we ran out of gas, we were assuming we weren't even going to bring the bird home so that we could provide overhead coverage.
0: Do you have any insight into what was actually going on? Or, um, I mean, was that just a totally separate division?
1: That was way above our pay grade up at the National Security Council level. Um, at that point, we were just the stick operators. And you know, I want to emphasize here that I was just one part of the team that was doing that operation.
0: Sure. It's, uh, you're the one that we get a chance to talk to today. So uh, that's why you get stuck with all of the questions. <laughs> so that changed the program a little bit. So what? how did Big Safari react to that?
1: I mean, did, were there changes to the Predator? It was interesting. After we came back that winter, it would have been uh, close to Christmas time, um, we closed our flight operations. And um, that was just due to the, the severe winter weather over the Hindu Kush. Um, we uh, were working um, to make improvements to the aircraft and bring it back the following year. What had been going on in parallel was that big blue Air Force, um, mostly at the emphasis of uh, General Jumper, uh, who was commander of Air Combat Command and then on to uh, chief of staff of the Air Force, to bring back a capability beyond what we had with the Wild predator. That was the, the version with the laser designator. Idea being that if we spot a target, and there are not traditional assets available, we should be able to do something against it. And there was a a, a top-level look at integrating some type of weapon system, whether it was the small-diameter bomb, hellfire, um, something that would fit on the Predator at the time. But Those had been put on hold for the most part through that fall because of – Limitations with um, one of the arms control treaties and um, the lawyers looking at it and saying, well, Predator being armed would actually be considered a cruise missile. Those got lifted late that fall, and the big safari team, along with General Atomics, was in the process of integrating Hellfire, and that was tested in the spring, uh, January, February timeframe. Uh, For the first time, and those very first launches were very low level using uh, the old analog model of the hellfire. So they did not um, occur more than about 2,000 feet above the ground. Once that was successful, uh, there was an emphasis from the National Security Council to go ahead and very quickly develop the Predator in an armed configuration to go back and hunt for bin Laden uh, that following summer. So I spent um, the next six, eight months, along with the rest of the team, running at a dramatic pace. We were integrating um, the prototype MTS ball, which was an improvement over the original ball that was on the Predator, uh, with increased uh, IR Uh, and camera capabilities it had a built-in laser designator we were working on integrating the Hellfire itself Um, at that point we're flying about 250 pounds over the original gross weight of the aircraft so we were learning how the aircraft flew operated the kind of range and mission profiles developing the tactics the techniques the procedures all of this while doing essentially prototype development to get this ready to go um, take it uh, late that summer or, or early that fall back to Afghanistan.
2: You weren't the first pilot to fire a Hellfire missile from a, from an unmanned aircraft, but you were the first to do it in a combat situation.
1: That's correct. Um, our team was actually packing up and getting ready to deploy to Afghanistan for missions when 9-11 happened. As such, the Air Force uh, ordered a C-17 for uh, the crews and the equipment, and we were picked up on the evening of the 12th um, in order to begin moving those assets forward. And just a, a comment here, I was in the jump seat of that aircraft when we took off out of Palmdale and headed east and I remember the air traffic controller gave us direct to where we were going, which anybody that's flown in the National Airspace System for those kind of flights, it's it's unheard of. It was eerie to be up in the airspace when there was nobody up but AWACS, fighters, and us. We, we proceeded, uh, proceeded east. Uh, I was dropped to the east coast where we were operating from. Um, what was different this time was that we added a fiber optic link. So to operate the Predator, we were working at a ground control station and ops center on the east coast. It was controlled via a fiber optic link to a satellite terminal in Europe It then went 23,000 miles to geosynchronous orbit and then bounced back down to the aircraft over Afghanistan. So now you're talking two continents away, which was uh, unheard of at the time, but has now become routine for flight operations. We began flying missions into Afghanistan, providing um, reconnaissance as early as September. I think the 18th was our first mission. And  … … were overhead on the first night of the war, um, providing reconnaissance for the other aircraft coming inbound. Um, it was that night that we were alerted of a high-value target. Uh, in this particular case, uh, we found out it was Mullah Omar, who was the um, the leader of the Taliban uh, in and around the, the Kandahar area, and we were able to locate him and… His escort convoy and followed them um, for a number of hours until they reached a a, a small compound 15-20 um, miles or so outside of out of Kanahar um, and that is the the location where the uh, the first hellfire strike um, took place during the opening out of the war.
0: If these craft are only traveling at something like ninety miles an hour. How come they don't get shot out of the sky all the time, or, or do they?
1: We have had quite a number of losses with the Predator. Um, I had uh, one shot out from underneath uh, in the Balkans uh, from anti-aircraft fire. They are absolutely vulnerable when you look at a Predator-class vehicle. However, the majority of places they are flown today are what we'd call either permissive or semi-permissive environments. Uh, So that allows you to use them in situations where you may not want to put a manned aircraft, but allows uh, something with long duration of a predator that you might be willing to lose. So when you're sitting in a pilot seat, um,
0: And that's essentially what it is, even if it's located thousands of miles away from the actual aircraft, right? I mean, it's got a similar layout. Or does it have a similar layout? I should just ask.
1: It does. Um, Predator and its big brother Reaper um, are actually hand-flown aircraft. You have uh, a throttle, a control stick, rudder pedals, but instead of a windscreen, you've got TV screens in front of you. So it is a very traditional cockpit. Even the more, I don't want to say advanced, but more recent aircraft uh, drones, they're all manned and operated by crews. What is slightly different with those is you're going to be drawing lines on the map and telling the aircraft where to go, uh, and you may not have hands on the stick and throttle like you do with Predator.
0: This is actually a really geeky question, but – Is there force feedback? I mean, was there any way to get a feel for the aircraft, or was it you were really relying on
1: visual? It's just visual, whether it's uh, your instruments or um, through the camera. That's all you've got.
0: You'd actually flown previously in combat, uh, and I mean, is there a different feeling to squeezing the trigger on a
1: Predator than other circumstances you'd been in? You don't have the same seat-of-the-pants feeling. You don't get The feel of the engine, the smells, the hot and the cold, the Gs. But I will say that you are as much mentally in the seat, in the cockpit, as any other manned system that
2: I've flown. Do you think that the lack of these things that Jason's talking about, the Gs, um, the resistance, does this feed into the stories that we read about the military not being able to keep pilots or get good unmanned aircraft pilots, is that difference part of why we have trouble keeping them? Perhaps. I think when you grow up as a kid
1: and you say, you know, I want to be a pilot, it's in a very traditional role where you're in the seat and you're flying and you're experiencing all of that. The world is changing and there are folks growing up now that go, yes i have an opportunity to fly an unmanned system that's something that appeals to me as well as a manned aircraft i will give that a try it affords opportunities for people that may have physical restrictions from flying a manned aircraft so there are opportunities there that for folks that have that that, that the real desire whether or not or how the air force comes about that or the other services to uh to meet those crew needs Um, yeah, there's, there's other pieces to that picture that, uh, that they've got to figure out.
0: When's the last time that you
1: flew a drone yourself? It's pushing 10 plus years now. Do you miss it? There's days that I miss the mission and the camaraderie and the sense of teamwork that you had in those types of missions
2: right because that's that's something interesting you were talking to you were speaking to earlier is that these machines require a lot of people there there are way more people like you were talking about the ground crew and the launch crew. There's a lot going on here there's a lot of people involved in these missions
1: absolutely. they are heavily crewed aircraft besides the pilot and the sensor operator you're going to have mission commanders and intelligence analysts. Uh, and other folks that are tied in within the the flight operations chain, as well as all of your your communications technicians, maintenance people, launch and recovery crew. So it it makes for a relatively high footprint. Unmanned only means nobody in the airplane. Right. Still plenty of people involved.
0: So just one last question, um, which is, What have you seen in terms of advancements? Do you still pay attention to what's going on, and and have there been major changes since you left the program?
1: I try to keep up uh, with the open source media. Um, I think what you're seeing is a transition to more heavily integrated systems. Uh, So the design is going to be from the ground up to be an unmanned system, but they are being developed to have much greater lifespan, greater redundancy, greater capabilities than what we had with Predator, which was really initially just a development system that ended up being fielded.
0: Scott Scott Swanson, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It was a wonderful conversation. Oh, you're
1: welcome. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of War College. If you enjoyed what you heard, we'd love to hear from you. We post every episode to Facebook, and every episode is also available for subscription on iTunes.
2: Next time on War College.
0: There's a lot of critics of the F-35, and there are problems, to be sure. But by and large, the program seems to be doing much better since the program was pretty massively restructured in the 2010 timeframe. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news ad free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership.